Welcome back, everybody. Very excited to have Philip joining from London. And Philip, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Christopher. It's uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks. So I know it's been a hectic couple of months for several reasons, and we'll get back to that. But just to recap, what was the what was the reason you ended up founding a shipping company and ended up in the shipping and gas industry? Was it by accident or careful design? Excellent question. And a question I actually ask myself, um, and have been asking myself for the last 10, 15 years, 20 years probably. Um, and I haven't really got to the bottom of how and how it happened, but I, I'll give some background. So um, uh, I'm born and brought up um, west of Bergen, uh, Bergen in Norway, uh, an island called Sotra, um, where there is a lot of maritime presence. Uh, clearly now there's a lot of oil and gas out there. Um, you've got uh, the, Stura, uh, the Stura oil terminal, you've got the Kolsnes, uh, the gas terminal, which of course supplies uh, a lot of the gas that uh, that Europe uses. Uh, but when I grew up, there was more a, I would say, shipping presence. Um, you know, I had in my family, I had um, certain people who'd been working at, um, at sea as, as, um, as mariners, etc. So it was always something that I was drawn towards to some extent. Um, then as I finished school, um, as you do in Norway, you have to do or you're supposed to do your 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 one year of um, of military service. Um, you know, I decided maybe not just to do that the regular route. Uh, so I wanted to do something within the Navy, um, Coast Guard, etc. So um, I ended up doing a, a nautical uh, degree. Uh, which basically gave me gave me a, a mate's license uh, to 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 be a, a yeah to work on 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 large ships um, in international trade, uh, and as part of that, uh, I ended up in the um, in the Royal Norwegian Coast Guard uh, as an officer. Um, having finished that, I always knew that I it wasn't really for me to be a mariner um, full time uh, or, or you know as a career as a mariner. But I was always fascinated about uh, the ins and outs of the commercial life within within um, uh, ship owning companies. The fact that it was international, uh, multicultural, you know, dealing with Asia, dealing with the US, et cetera, et cetera. So I was drawn towards business uh, at that point in time. I ended up going to um, Anhorho in Bergen, um, um, the leading um, business school in Norway. Um, got a got a degree there uh, and then um, applied for a job uh, at Herg LNG in Oslo. Herg LNG being one of the leading um, LNG ship owners globally um, and the leading one in Norway. Um, so I started work there um, in 2002. And then as we sort of progressed, I was there for four years, uh, I saw an opportunity to, to do something different, um, to capitalize uh, on the LNG um, commercial experience I'd gained, uh, but also at that point in time in 2006, you know, the capital markets were, were wide open for, uh, for new concepts, new ideas to get them funded. Um, so me and um, co-founders, Justin uh, Ullan and, and, and Trim Tvetnes, um, we came up with the idea and the concept um, of founding FlexLNG, which at that point in time uh, was about uh, floating LNG production. Uh, and then to cut a long story short, you know, one thing leads to another. And just in, in, I mean, in short, when you found a company, you need to be a bit naive, not naive in a, in a, in a, in a negative sense. But if you, if you at that point in time are aware of all the challenges you are going to face, 
you would never do it because no rational person will ever want to inflict such an amount of emotional uh, pain on, on yourself. So you need to be a bit, a bit naive. Take one month at a time, set yourself near-term targets, achieve those, and then sort of keep 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 moving on. Um, and that's essentially how how FlexLNG was born. In the sense, you know, we set out with a with an idea, a concept. Uh, we managed to get it funded, managed to get it listed, and of course, you know, then the, the global financial crisis happened. Um, we had to rejig the company, refocus the company, uh, or not necessarily doing doing floating energy production, but but going down the the, the ship owner route, the more the more traditional flex the more traditional ship. Uh, LNG shipping, which is of course the flex LNG that you see today, which is listed in, um, in Oslo. So, all in all, you, you need a sense of, and you need a, a certain degree of 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 madness, controlled madness, probably, to become uh, an entrepreneur to found a company. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, because as I say, if you would have or seen and and, and seen all the challenges that that, that lie ahead, uh, no rational person would do it. No, it makes sense. So just reflecting on that experience, obviously today it's been one of the best performing stocks in the Oslo Stock Exchange. And of course, many different reasons for that, of course. But you say when you start a company, you get some battle scars, you learn a ton of new things. And do you regret on some things or is it just uh, learnings you take on to the next company or what are sort of the summary after that experience? And maybe that's also a segue to say, okay, you actually wanted to go again on a new company in the same industry. Or yeah, 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 that's true. Um, I wouldn't say there are regrets because I'm not a person that you know regrets really anything I've done. Sure, you look back and you say, do you know what? There were there were different ways to get to the same same goal, or should have done things differently. I think re- I think regrets is a very very um, is a very negative um, way of looking at it, but. For sure, I mean, there were lots and lots of key learnings that came out of having founded FlexLNG. Um, you know, one of those being we um, we grew the company exceptionally quickly um, from having um, from having founded it um, until we were probably 40, 50 employees. It took us two years, maybe. Um, also. The, the way we went about, um, you know, building our presence within the market. Um, I mean, LNG at that point in time was a was a was a was an established market LNG ship owning, but of course, the concept of floating LNG production was not. Although, although you know, oil FPSOs etc. had been a lot of oil and gas FPSOs had been around for for decades. So there were a lot of learnings from that, um, and I kind of sort of told myself, I'm guessing in. 2012, 2013, that you know the 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 flex LNG experience had been um, had been so intense that I sort of took took the view that if I was ever going to start a company again, it would probably take many years. But then, of course, you lose yourself in uh, new ideas. You lose yourself in in people coming to you, speaking to you, uh, picking up on trends in the industry. Uh, small tidbits here and there and my brain sort of can collect information for years and all of a sudden it manages sort of to put the jigsaw pieces together or the lego lego bits together and that's really what happened you know that there came a natural time for me to to leave flex lng at that point in time Fredrickson group um had taken control um i was in singapore 
Um, there wasn't really a role for me, a natural role for me there, because I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really needed. Um, and you know, as a as a consequence, um, the decision was made to come back to the UK because uh, I was originally living in the UK before uh, when we founded Flexibility. Come back to the UK, uh, and at that point in time, I sort of spotted what I thought would become a very interesting, interesting trend, interesting. Uh, thing to do over the next couple of years I thought maybe three or four years here we are nine years on <laughs> but and 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 that was really about using a lot of the knowledge I had from the gas industry um because of course LNG is gas but not apply it to shipping but apply it to to road transport and people say well you're going from shipping to road transport I mean how do those link together well there are actually quite a lot of similarities um you know, you're dealing with large companies. Uh, a lot of our companies are large corporates today, DHL, Amazon, yeah, Royal Mail, etc. And you do the same in, in the LNG world, although there you're dealing with the Shells and the BPs of the world. So there are quite a lot of similarities. You're dealing with large international companies. Uh, and then, of course, come, you know, come to 2013, 2014, etc. There was a strong focus or there was an I would say strong focus, but it was an emerging focus of decarbonizing. And how can you remove you know, greenhouse gas emissions from, from your operations? So um, the idea was born um, to start focusing on decarbonizing long haul or, or heavy trucks, if you want, um, here in the UK. Um, and doing that, not going down the biodiesel route or the hydrogen route or the, the battery electric route, but using... Um, you know, a, a, a part of, of the world that I knew very well, which is gas uh, and biomethane, which is called biogas in the Nordics, but which is a renewable and sustainable gas is produced from waste feedstocks, whether that's, you know, sewage sludge or it's food waste, manures, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea was born then to, to, to set up a company, focus on, um, on building very large public access refueling stations here in the UK uh, and thereby convincing fleets they should move away from diesel over to running uh, running 100% uh, renewable fuel. Now, getting back to some comments I probably made five minutes ago about being slightly naive and, and always um, believing that things will take a lot shorter than they actually do. Uh, we founded the company in 2014 and, you know, me in my in my sort of, with my naive uh, rose-tinted uh, glasses on, I probably thought we would be where we are today four, five, six years on. And of course, now we are nine, soon nine and a half years down the road. So things take always take a lot longer than you than you imagine, a lot more challenges along the road. And as I said, thankfully, I, I, I don't know about all the ch challenges on day one or you or you never do it. Yeah, it, it's a couple of great points there. So is it correct to say that you and your CFO spent two years basically just working on the idea, talking to people, trying to convince them because... I don't know if it's if it's a common lesson in entrepreneurship, but usually it's not only enough to have a better solution. They need to be incentivized to act upon it, and a lot of different pieces need to be together in order to, you know, basically change, you know, road transport and heavy trucks. So, do you have any stories from the couple of first years that you know explains all of this? Yeah, I mean, so the first well, couple of those. Um, first of all, the 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 just getting back to being an entrepreneur, and then I'll tell you a bit about trying to convince um, fleets that have been 
running perfectly good diesel trucks for 40 years, why on earth they shouldn't move, move away from them? But, you know, as we came back from Singapore, uh, my wife and I and our, and our son, she was pretty, pretty keen for me just to have a normal job, as I call it a normal job, but, you know, just just work in a large organization, get a regular paycheck and yeah and 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 basically have a have a have a family around a family life around that that was not full filled with the the ups and downs of um, of being an entrepreneur and um we had a discussion about it and and you know for me it was like i i i just don't know what that life is like i i've 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 lost touch with it, it, it it's not it's not me any, anymore my dna has now become sort of um twisted in in such a way if you want that the only way that I know now is to to go out, do something on my own, create not not on my own, but you know, with 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 a with a co-founder, but to do something and create something. But in doing so, you end up coming all the way back to scratch because you do such simple things as okay, you need a you need a design student somewhere to to design a logo. You need to, you know, get a get a website up and running. You need to get a bank account. All of these small things that take forever and a day and a lot of focus. And whilst you're doing that, you then also have to try and develop the concept, speak to potential customers, and get out there and and really um, try and find out what is it that is going to, what is it the market wants? How can you how can you fill that that void if you want? How can you satisfy that market demand? And I think when, when I look back, or when I now today look at, and and, I'm, and and by the way, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rubbish people or companies who are trying to do hydrogen trucks and hydrogen as a fuel or battery electric heavy trucks, etc. But a lot of those solutions today are companies saying, I know what the industry needs, I know what the industry wants without necessarily asking the industry, do you really want these solutions? Do they work for you? Now, what we did was we spent probably a, a lot longer than we thought, which was really engaging with some of the leading fleets in the UK. Uh, and of course, this process was, as I say, a lot longer than I thought, where we would go in, we'd sit down with them and say, okay, if you want to decarbonize, if you want to move away from diesel, what solutions will work for you? Um, diesel truck, diesel is an amazing fuel. It, it's energy dense. You, you, you can fill it into a tank in a matter of three or four minutes and you can drive a thousand kilometers um, in a truck that has a full tank. So it, 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 it is by far the best fuel out there today if you want to run a very efficient operation. So, so one of the lessons for us was don't go in and try to force some force a, a round peg into a square hole or, 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 or vice versa go out there and say, all right, if you're going to transition away from diesel, what do you need? And the answers were very clear. We need a truck that can do the same work as a diesel truck today, that can do it in the same time, that can carry or that can pull the same weight. Um, and yeah, the refueling experience needs to be pretty much as good as diesel. We took that on board. That fed into how we would design the stations, which today are the largest stations in Europe, potentially in the world have a fill time which is pretty much equivalent to diesel and we worked actually with the truck truck manufacturers as well and said guys your design today can do this can you provide that in two or three years um so it was very much 
letting the market decide what it wanted rather than us trying to come up with a, an amazing solution we thought was an amazing solution and then try to force that on the market. And, and, and out of that, I mean, I remember, yeah, speaking to, uh, I won't mention names now because it wouldn't be fair, but some of the very, some a, a global logistics giant um, who in 20, 2014, 15 told me, um, probably second half 14, so very, very soon after we, we founded the company, who said, it's great that you guys um, are focusing on decarbonizing transport, but we believe in LNG. Uh, we believe that LNG is the truck fuel that is going to get us as the global logistics giant to where we need to be. Uh, and I said, okay, fair enough. Um, we disagree with that because whilst uh, what we do is compressed natural gas, um, and then you have liquefied natural gas, the engine knows no different um, because once it goes into the engine, it, it's become gas again. But of course, LNG is a bit more expensive. Um, it's not as driver friendly, et cetera, et cetera. Getting into details here, but 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 the reality was they told us you're going down the right, wrong path. We need to do LNG. I then, of course, knew that if you look to the US, um, in North America, okay, so US and Canada, a lot of truck fleets there around 2010, 2011, 2012 started out going down the LNG route, but they soon pivoted over to the CNG route. And of course, that's exactly what we've seen here in the UK in the last five years is fleets have pivoted away from LNG over to CNG because it's it's cheaper, it's more um, it's greener, um, it's more driver friendly. It now gives you pretty much the same range, operational range, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, that was us saying, okay, you guys have decided that, but let's see if there are other similarities from around the world. And one of them, of course, was from North America, which is the leading country today that runs gas um, gas trucks. And there, of course, we'd seen exactly why um, why that 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 pivot had happened. Uh, and today, we are in the midst of that exact same thing happening here in the UK. Very interesting. So, from my perspective, if you are going to be able to succeed with a with a fuel, it, it, I think you have said it yourself that it needs to be reliable, uh, cost effective, and available at a big scale. So, yes. of those three parts, where do you think people, you know? underestimate, overestimate, because there's so many solutions thrown out there. So how do you use that framework in order to decide? You, you touch upon hydrogen, it's electric, of course, there's so many solutions out there. And how should, you know, hopefully rational people think about this puzzle? So um, if we take if we take one assumption here, we, 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 which you can apply across all, which is if you are serious about greenhouse gas emission reduction, then you can achieve 100% greenhouse gas emission reduction by running on electric, by hydrogen, or by running on biomethane, or indeed by running on a high blend um, superior biodiesel, okay? So let's sort of set that aside and say, there isn't really a big difference in that. So then it really comes down to saying, all right, what a lot of people don't, don't fully grasp is that the logistics industry operates on very tight margins. A typical profit um, uh, profit margin for a truck operator in the UK, um, a large fleet operator in the UK is between three to 5%, all right? So that is that does not give you a lot of leeway to adopt more expensive solutions 
if you're still not, if you're still going to compete with your competitors who, as of today, have not adopted those solutions. So, what are people? A lot of people miss here is they get so caught up in something that's shiny and new and something that politicians or policymakers have said we all need to adopt by 2035 or 2040 or 2045. But the problem here is that there is no solution out there today for hydrogen or battery electric, which does not increase your, your overall haulage cost by anything from 50% to potentially several hundred percent. Now that just doesn't work. We, we work closely with probably 80%-ish, so 80 out of the lar 100 largest fleets in the UK. Either they're existing customers, they're going to be customers, or they're, they're, they're busy doing trials, et cetera, et cetera. The insights we get from them, um, we believe are unique because they sit down with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis and give us a kind of a bit of a sneak peek behind the curtain as to how they think, how, how they run their operations. And at the end of the day, um, as much as we would like to think differently, nobody can or will go green if they lose money compared to where they are today. Sure, you will get large fleets that say we're taking 10 trucks, hydrogen trucks, battery electric trucks on as a trial. Sure, but a lot of that is for R&D purposes. A lot of that is to... You know, and they, they might be operating 3,000 trucks, right? So, so it gets lost in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. But you're not seeing them ordering 300 trucks or 500 trucks or 1,000 trucks because they just can't. The economics aren't there today. So at the end of the day, it really comes down to what, for, for me, is so simple and so fundamental and basic, which is economics. And that's where I feel, unfortunately, uh, there is a lack of realistic analysis. There's always talk about how batteries are going to get cheaper, how batteries are going to get lighter, how they're going to get better, better energy efficiency, how the hydrogen supply chain will get cheaper, how hydrogen trucks will get cheaper. Sure, uh, that may or may not happen. It probably will happen at some point in time. But fleets today don't care about what's coming in five years or 10 years or 20 years. What they care about is they've got contracts they need to fulfill They've got profit margins that they need to hit, and they just cannot take on board solutions that may or may not be mature 5, 10, 20 years from now. When they are mature, because they, they change their, their, their trucks every five years on average, right? Um, so um, not all of them, of course, but in, in gradual batches. So if they order, if, if they bet on one technology today, which, which is buy methane trucks, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily wedding, wedded to that for 20 years or 30 years. You know, if some amazing groundbreaking technology comes 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 here in five or 10 or 15 years, sure, they can pivot. Uh, and I think that's one of the keys here. It's about economics. It's about getting down to the, the bare bones of running a company, which a lot of policymakers don't really get. It's because you've got contracts to deliver on, and you need to make sure that you have a healthy profit margin so that you can actually pay your, pay your staff, et cetera.
that's a very reasonable point. Uh, so if we look at the roadmap, can you explain to us where do you see refuels today? You just uh, went on the stock exchange. Uh, I guess there's a couple of uh, interesting reasons for that. One is, of course, access to capital. And it seems like I have a plan to go further down the supply chain or do a bit of strategic decisions. But so why is the timing right now? And what is hopefully the consequences looking to five years or maybe 10 years into the future? So I'm sure we all are aware that the capital markets in the last 18 months have not been great, right? The amount of IPOs that have happened have been pathetic. You know, it's been a handful of them, pretty much. And we've had very volatile markets. So we often get the question, why on earth would you list when the IPO markets aren't great? And the answer there is, we can only control what we can control. We can't clearly can't control how the global, you know, global equity markets and global financial markets are. The company now has reached a stage where we are growing so rapidly. We've got so much good stuff happening ahead of us. We've got, you know, strategic options that we would like to explore. When I say strategic options, it doesn't mean selling the company by, by the way, because that's often, you know, lingo for that. But you know, there might be MA stuff we can do in the future, et cetera, et cetera. All of that requires us to take a step up and have a company structure that gives us easier access to capital than we've had as being a private company. Uh, and we require um, growth capital at a quantum that we didn't have access to before. So we there are two options. One was to go down a private equity route where we would you know, do a deal with a private equity firm and, 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 and stay private. For a number of reasons, we chose not to do that. Uh, and then you're only left with basically one option, and that is to, to, to list the company. Now, the markets aren't great, uh, for sure, um, or haven't been great. And, and when we went onto the stock exchange in, in May, they weren't fantastic either. But that's fine. You know, we are, um, we're long-term, you know, I'm a large shareholder, so are, you know, so is my co-founder, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not going anywhere anytime soon. So we've done all of the legwork to get all the documentation done, get all the audits done, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was a question, all right, do we do we just bin all of that and wait another year until the markets are better with no guarantees they'll be better in a year's time or, or, or in six months? Or do we get the company listed? Sure, uh, we didn't raise a lot of money. We were basically minimum listing where we raised the vast majority from existing shareholders. So of course we didn't get a lot of new capital coming in, but then we are at least listed. We can raise our profile. Uh, we can work on marketing the company. And then when the markets do improve and do open up a bit more, we can then raise additional capital to then start to, to, to take the company um, a step further from where we are today. So, you know, from our perspective, why list? There are, you know, I've listed a company before. There are pros and cons with being, with being private and there are pros and cons with being public. But for us, um, the pros here, uh, you know, outweigh the cons because, you know, we grew in, we just announced today that we grew close to 80% you know, July last year to July this year. You know, we, we, we've been you know, guiding that we will have, we will see similar growth rates going forward, whether it's 70%, 80%, 60%, 90%, but, you know, it's going to be in that range uh, going forward. And that type of growth rate gives us a lot of opportunities Um not just here in the UK, but also abroad. So therefore getting the company listed, although the markets have not been great, 
uh, it is what it is. You know, we need to focus on what we can control. And I think over time, um, shareholders um, will will appreciate that. And yeah, as I say, we, us as founders, we're not going anywhere. We're locked up uh, and so on and so forth. So now it was just really about getting a platform and getting a stage set um, so that we can then take this company uh, in a direction and at a speed in the future that it deserves. Why listed in Oslo? Is that the only option or are there other options? No, there are, option, there are other options. Um, we looked at the UK, um, we looked at Netherlands, uh, and we looked at Oslo. So those are basically three three options for us. Um, a couple of reasons why we ended up in, in Oslo. Um, it's an energy-heavy uh, stock exchange, so there's, 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 there's quite a lot of knowledge around, around energy. Um, Quite a bit of green investments, uh, renewable investments have been listed there. Not all of those have necessarily done well, but you know there is a there is a fairly good understanding around uh, um, around renewable investments. And the Euronext growth um, market does offer um, an efficient way um, of getting listed. So to give an example, if we were to list here in the UK. From you submit an application to the stock exchange over here, it's probably a three three to four month process. From you submit an application for your next growth, it's it's fifteen working days. Now, there's a lot of work that goes on before those fifteen days start, but that you have such a such a fairly short window is important when you've got markets that are that are fairly fairly volatile. Because I mean, the world could be upside down in three months. There's a less risk that it's upside down in um, in 15 years. So so a number of reasons there. Uh, I think from us, um, capital markets are international now. Um, you know, we, we have investors um, here in the UK. Uh, there's nothing preventing institutions in the UK, in Europe, in the US from owning stocks in Norway. Uh, in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, a, a number of reasons. Um, and yeah, so far, so far we've been, uh, been very happy about, uh, uh, yeah, about uh, our presence, although it's only three months in now since, since we got listed. Yeah. So obviously it's a, it's a huge momentum behind renewables, uh, whether it's energy or other solutions. So if you take the typical investor who maybe tunes into this podcast and that investor is trying to decide which companies he wants to put in his basket, obviously there are some sectors right now killing it big time. And there's a lot of different projects. Is this, do you think this is the case of, you know, running the numbers and seeing that it's actually profitable in, in the near term versus some projects who either do carbon capture or a lot of different high-tech solutions where it's not really understandable how they're going to make money today, but hopefully they will figure it out in a couple of years. How do you sort of see the environment in general and what can a typical investor use as frameworks or methods to dive into different companies? Because it's getting a, it, it will become a big industry, this whole yeah. sector, I guess. Yeah, it will. Um, so one of the lessons learned um, from my Flexible and G days um was that you know I, I I told my business partner um for 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 CNG fuels Baden uh, our CFO that you know I would never list the company again and of course I had to eat my words there because we have listed again uh, the reason I said that was um early stage companies that have a concept an idea that are still years away from having 
you know, tangible infrastructure built or tangible cash flows, et cetera, et cetera, um, is not something I ever wanted to have listed again. Because Flex and G, of course, were a concept, it took us years to get something built, et cetera. And in that interim, you're quite vulnerable because if the, if the capital market's shut, then the first things that investors run away from is the stuff that has no cash flow and will produce something attractive in the future. So we took a different tack this time, which was let's keep our let's keep our you know head below the radar. Let's build a concept. Let's build a company. Let's build something that is real, tangible, has tangible cash flow, tangible revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, um, if we were ever going to list, we were going to list something that was mature. Now we are now a nine and a half year year old company. So uh, I mean. I shouldn't be giving advice to personal investors out there, but at least one of the lessons I, um, I've learned and, 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 and which is important to me is being a public company um, is of course about delivering, all right? And I get that, all right? Yeah, you, you need to deliver updates, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also about not having six years until something will be realized and something great will happen may or may not happen um because so much can happen in that six years that that is a at least for me uh sure you can have certain themes that are very popular and therefore shoot up in value but i don't necessarily think they're shooting up in value because there are there is substance behind it i think there are just themes that investors get hooked onto, like like ai today all right the the AI cream uh, sorry craze that is currently going on is a bit like dot com and a bit like some some of the green companies that did list um, two years ago three years ago four years ago are today struggling because I believe because they've 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 been in the public uh, they've been a public company when they've been going through a lot of their early growth pains we we are we are through those growth pains. Um, now we are cash flow positive, um, and, we, and we continue to have strong growth ahead. So I would at least look at when you are, if, if, if you're looking to invest in, in the green space or in energy transition, you know, I would want to look for something that has substance and near-term substance and not just something that is probably three or five or who whoever knows how how many years away uh, it may or may not be because so much can 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 happen in that time definitely so just looking ahead on you know future milestones is one of the biggest ones the journey from 10 11 fueling stations to 100 that is of course one is that one of the biggest ones or are there other milestones you are excited about so we will we've got runaway growth here in the UK um, at this point in time, we've got 12 stations operation. Now, now 12 stations doesn't sound like much. It's how, you know, people will think, oh, you nine-year-old company, you've only got 12 stations. Seriously? What have you guys been doing? You've been on holiday most of the time or what is it? Well, first of all, building infrastructure um, takes time. You have to negotiate with, with landowners. You need to get uh, council approvals. You need to get, you know, you need to get connection agreements with gas pipeline operators, electricity operators, you need to get surveys done, you know, environmental surveys, et cetera, et cetera. All of this takes a lot longer than a lot of people think, particularly maybe not in, in, in Scandinavia where 
land ownership is is a, is a much easier process. But once you get out into Europe, um, you know, dealing with 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 land and dealing with land ownership can take you years to negotiate. So we've spent a lot of time doing that, which is why we are now ready to 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 really crank up um, um, our construction of um, of stations up to a run rate of two to three stations per quarter going forward. So in the UK, we're kind of sorted if you want, all right? The UK will just continue to grow on its own and it will just to, you know, continue to increase um, in pace. I think that the, the two things ahead that are, to me at least, are, are very exciting is one is we want to up, integrate upstream. So we want to start taking ownership positions in biomethane production or, or biogas production facilities. Today, all of the biogas that we that we use is 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 contracted. Uh, we don't actually have ownership stakes in some of these facilities. And that's also one of the reasons we wanted to list so that we can have access to capital to pursue that. So that's something to 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 look look out for. Uh, and there, there are some very interesting, we believe, very value accretive uh, opportunities. Um, not that far ahead. And the second one is international expansion um, outside of the UK market. Now, we don't want to expand internationally just for the sake of expanding. It needs to uh, it needs to make sense strategically. It needs to make sense, of course, financially as well. And you know, it's taken us nine years to get to where we are today. We wouldn't go into some kind of EU country and spend nine years building the knowledge base we've, we, we've got today. So... There again, you're probably looking at you know, joint ventures or acquisitions or something like that. That's also something that is that you know on our on our radar, if you want, because at, in, what we're doing in the UK today is so well proven. It's become business as usual. You know, we've got an amazing team now that that, uh, that gets these stations built. Uh, our customers just see running CNG trucks on biomethane as business as usual. Um, it, it, it's for for them, it's exactly the same as running a diesel truck. Uh, all the all the um, all the sexiness around it, all the uncertainty around it has has gone out the window. Now the only thing they're they're, they're focused on is okay, Philip. When are you guys going to open more stations? Because because currently we are constrained by the amount of trucks that we can operate. Because you, Philip, you know refuels, you haven't got more stations uh, in operation. So we ourselves now are holding back our own growth. And I think going forward, um, that's. The key focus in the UK is to get more stations built so that we can unlock even even further growth. I mean, that sounds a bit sort of like like we're we're not content because, as I say, we're growing 80 percent per annum. But we could do so much more if we had more stations. Definitely. So just looking at it from my perspective, you know, I think the demand side seems pretty obvious. People need to decarbonize. Companies need a solution that is ready today. That solution is there. But if you go to, let's uh, call it supply side for, for the easiness of it, what can stop the supply? Where is the biomethane capped sort of in like a global yeah. context and transportation? Is that an answer, a clear answer today or just don't we really know? Yet? Really, really good question. Uh, thank you for that one. So, all right. Um, biomethane, biogas is produced from waste feedstocks. So that means... The easiest way to explain it is for those of your listeners who 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 know how a compost pile works. 
anything organic that you would throw onto a compost pile and all, also organic stuff you wouldn't throw on there like sewage sludge right but but anything organic that decomposes um can be used to produce bimethane and biogas across europe today there is not a shortage of feedstock meaning there is not a shortage of waste material that can be fed into biogas facilities on the contrary there is still lots of uh, organics that go to landfill. There's lots of organics that, that, that gets thrown, that gets dumped, that doesn't get collected. And so Europe is not short of, of feedstock at all. If you look at biodiesel, bioethanol, et cetera, there is a shortage uh, of waste feedstocks that are genuine, renewable and sustainable. That is not the case for biomethane, which is why the scalability of biomethane um, is so great. If you look at production capacity then, um, as of today, there is more biomethane wanting to wanting to go into transport demand than there is actual transport demand. So that's also a, a good place. But then you have to notice that was today. In three or four years time, there will be a shortage if not more capacity is built. But that is actually where um, we are in Europe, we're in a very good position. Uh, because there is now a um, very strong push from the EU, UK, Nordics, et cetera, to get a lot more biogas facilities um, built. Um, one of the outcomes of the Ukraine war, the energy crisis, the fact that Russia turned off the gas taps, et cetera, has been that there's a strong focus within the EU um, to try to control its own destiny and try to produce as much gas as it can as possible. And of course, uh, you can't just... Uh, if you haven't got fossil gas reserves, you can't just drill and hope, hope you're going to get it. So there is a strong focus on producing more renewable gas, which is biomethane. Uh, and the EU has an ambition um, over the next eight to 10 years to 10x um, renewable gas production in the EU. Now, 10x is a huge number and massive growth going forward. So we do not see, at this point in time, we do not see a scenario where we are going to run out of renewable gas that we can source for our stations, even though we've got runaway growth down, uh, downstream, which is which is why also our customers, uh, our end users, our fleet operators see biomethane as a sustainable and a long-term solution because they are confident that there is going to be enough production uh, also in the future, which is something they are not necessarily 100% sure is going to be the case with biodiesel. I understand. So just a couple of fun questions to uh, to finish off the conversation. And I want to dive into the concept of entrepreneurship, which we started with, I think. But what do you think is the most uh, underrated yet vital skill in order to take an idea, make the idea and all the way up to a stock exchange or, you know, a, a impactful company? Because that journey, like you said, can easily take 10 years, right? Okay, I'll probably give you a couple there because there, there are so many. I've said you need to be a bit naive in the sense that there needs to be a degree of naivety and a bit of, and, and also stamina, because this is not something that takes, there are very few companies, apart from tech companies, right? You know, if you come up with a fantastic app or do something in the AI space, there are very few companies that you can just take within six months, two years, whatever it is, uh, and list it uh, unless you've got a lot of money behind you already and you go out and buy something. So you need a bit of naivety. You you need uh, you need a lot of stamina. Um, 
I would also say, knowing what I know now, um, make sure that you get some great advisors uh, around you. They don't necessarily need to be on your board. They don't need to be investors, but have some someone you can call up, uh, a bit of a mentor. Uh, you can call up, um, bounce ideas off. If you've had a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, you know, get a bit of moral support because it can be tough. I wouldn't say it's lonely, but clearly you need to have someone who you can you can open up to and actually, you know, get a bit of get a bit of feedback from. Uh, and as I say, it doesn't need to be on your board because they, you know, you, you might have people on your board of directors who are more there in a professional capacity. This is someone who who you can really open up to and and can can give you some guidance. Second, uh, third one is, you know, if you're if you're in a stage of life where you're married, got a long term partner, et cetera, et cetera, make sure they're supported. If not, forget it. I mean, just don't even bother going down that route. You need someone and you need to be dead open about this on dead day, day one. You know, uh, I've been married now since 2009. Um, we've been together since, you know, 2005. And one of the first things I, I told her was, you know, I think I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And uh, I met her in Oslo. She, she's Norwegian. I think I'm going to become an entrepreneur and um, I'm going to move to the UK. Uh, and of course, that was important set set the scene for where we are today. Um, so yeah, make sure that you tick that box. Um, and finally, I would just say as well, you know, sometimes don't take life too seriously because when you're in the middle of something and it doesn't go to plan, you know, you think your entire world is crumbling around you. Absolutely not. You know, get a bit of distance to it. Um, shut shut down your laptop, go for a walk, do something different, go to the gym, see some friends, go back, and you will see that what you thought was the solution that you could never sort out has lots of different angles to it. And actually, when you've probably found the the right the right solution to it, um, you're probably gonna find that, I mean, what a schmuck you were that didn't see that in the first place. So, you know, just just take your time. Don't try to rush too much because that's one of the things that one of the key learnings I at least had from Flexil and G was, um, you know, I wanted there to be 28 hours in a day. Um, I wanted things that would usually take a month to happen in three days. Um, now I feel much better about myself when I now actually realize that, yeah, stuff that should take a month, you can maybe compress it to three weeks, but for three days, forget it. All right. Be a bit realistic about your timelines as well, and and don't don't be so hard on yourself. That's great advice. Uh, just a, another question: Does location matters? Because we're both from small uh, communities, and you ended up in London. You went to Singapore. I'm in Oslo right now. How important is the location in terms of what you want to build or what industry you want to work for? Is there a value there to try to go to a hub or at least experience the hub? and learn from the hub and then eventually go back if you need to, of course. I think there is uh, for sure, um, because of course um, there are, I mean, I now post COVID, you know, working from home, working remotely, you know, digital nomads, et cetera. Right. Theoretically you can do anything from anywhere, but you, you do need to bounce off 
energy, I'd say, all right? You, 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 you need to bounce off brilliant minds. You need to bounce off people who, who, are, who are doing what, what you're trying to do or who have, um, or have at least done something similar. And of course, when you're from a fairly small place, you're not necessarily going to find them there. So, so yeah, I, I, I would say that, that's, that, that's very important. Um, I think I'd also like to say that coming from a small place can also be an advantage um, because a lot of people I know who've done well in business or have done well in something else um, aren't born and brought up um, in a big place. And that might be coincidence that people from small places get attracted to other people from small places, right? So it might be a pretty pretty bad data sample I've got here that, you know, I come from a small place and hence I, I we, we, we interact better. But I think there is a, there's a, there's a thing to be said for, and I'm sure there's some people who've done cultural studies here, but you know, if you're in a big environment, um, you might be maybe quite settled. Um, you might not feel the same drive for, going out, trying to do something different, seeing, seeing, appreciating different angles, being op as open to accepting input, which is very different to where you've come from. Because if you live in a big place, that's, that's your day-to-day -day life. So therefore, you might, you might have developed, um, I wouldn't say short-circuited, but developed um, slight insensitives um for picking up um nuances picking up um ideas because that's where you've come from but if you come from a much smaller place everything in a big place is in in, in a hub is new to you is different and there might be something there that you're actually then more more susceptible um to picking up on 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 stuff once again my my um my data points here are, are, are very, 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 very few and far between, but there might be something there as well, but it's not always an advantage necessary to come from a, to come from a city or a large place. No, it's, it's a very interesting, um, interesting topic indeed. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope we can do it again in the future and uh, good luck with all the developments going forward as well. Thank you so much, Christopher. Been lovely talking to you. If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vornheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vornheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vornheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vornheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.